welcome to episode 5. I'm Greg Davies, your heavy metal historian. In the half-century span of metal history, numerous subgenres have arisen, many of which have spawned or influenced subgenres of their own. Be it punk or grunge or death metal, the musical style has generated some of the most diverse sounds that fit underneath the banner of heavy metal. But there's one subgenre of metal that stands separately from the others, because of how vast and unusual it is, and also because it existed before metal did, as impossible as that may sound. Beginning with this edition of Heavy Metal Historian, we take a two-part look at shock rock, the unusual classification of a musical genre based on the appearance of the artists, or their theatrical performance, or their ability to offend the public. If there's one component that has been common among heavy metal across the years, it is the collection of darker subjects that bands have tackled. From suicide to horror to Lucifer, metal bands have embraced darker elements of life, society and humanity, as evidenced in our previous episode where we looked at the influence of Jack the Ripper and other serial killers on heavy metal music. If we were to look within the confines of heavy metal itself, we could map out these dark side elements back to artists like Alice Cooper and Kiss, But while it's fair to weigh their influence on the future bands following in their steps, we would be moving too far ahead of ourselves. Shock rock is a genre that is dominated by heavy metal, but it existed before Black Sabbath began, and its origins stem earlier in history. But first, what is it about shock rock that seems to go beyond metal itself? How is it that bands like Twisted Sister, Rammstein, and The Misfits, who sound nothing alike aside from their metal roots, all fit within the confines of a subgenre? The solution is not too simple, and the deeper we go, the lack of definite divisions will make things a little more confusing. So let's simplify the definition. What is shock rock? Shock rock is a genre that incorporates bands based on 1. the appearance of the artists, or 2. the theatrical presentation of the artists, or 3. a notable and or documented ability to offend specific demographics, or 4. a combination of these three descriptions. Thus, a band like Early Mudvayne, with their grease paint, and a band like Gwar, with their blood-saturated theatrics on stage, and a band like Cannibal Corpse, who made their career on offensive song titles, can all fit within the same genre. But what's the appeal of shadowy macabre horror and shock rock and heavy metal? What is it about the theatrics of some of these bands that makes it so integral and important to their presentation? And why is the shock factor, or the ability to offend, such an important part of this subgenre? The answer to these questions lie in the origins. So where does shock rock hail from? The true beginnings lie in folklore and religion, both elements that powered the creation of horror literature. Before the 20th century, there were many aspects of humanity and life that had not yet been explained by science. It was in the undetermined that caused fear, and the legends of vampires, ghosts, werewolves, witches and ghouls arose in smaller communities in attempts to explain the unexplained, wherever religion could not provide answers. But religion in and of itself, particularly Christianity, played a part. The fire and brimstone sermons dished up a shock rock performance of their own, instilling fear in the hearts of the congregations, with visions of burning in a lake of fire while the horned shape of the devil oversaw the torment. This iconic imagery created by the church is still used to this day in shock rock music and in horror movies as well. Choosing to be a living obscenity You can go to hell You're something 
Other ancient religions also play a part, with many pre-Christian religions including the embodiment of a trickster god, such as Loki, from North mythology, a prankster being that served not only to be mischievous, but in some cases provide shocks and horrors during ancient times. The literature of horror fiction was an innate offspring from the shock of folklore and religion, and from legends and myths rose Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Anne Radcliffe's The Italian, and the compositions of Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. Even earlier, in 1532, the series of Gargantua and Pantagruel, stories of two giants filled with grotesque horrors, ludicrous oddities, and even scatological humour would serve to shock and offend, eventually being censored, banned, and treated with suspicion. The weird and macabre environment of the writings in horror fiction, whether it's in ancient, classic, or modern horror, results in fearful reactions from readers, and the works continue to shock and amuse to this day. But the macabre nature of horror not only excelled in print, but found a new home in theatre previous to the 20th century. An 1820 stage play called The Vampire, written by James Robinson Planch, served to shock audiences in London, and has been accredited with redefining the imagery of a vampire that would later be consolidated and refined by Bela Lugosi in 1931's Dracula. The play would serve to be an early English inspiration on the theatre of the grotesque, drama from Italy at the turn of the century specialising in the macabre and the horror. These performances also united some elements of humour and absurdities to punctuate the fearful moments, a concept that would later be termed as gallows humour, which would be outlined by Sigmund Freud in 1927. Horror theatre was most notably perfected in France in 1897 with the launching of the Grand Guignol. Performances and plays at the Grand Guignol specialised in horror shows, especially amoral and realistic horror. The graphic nature of the shows would serve to shock the audience, who would be thrilled into fear by the awesome displays. The gory performances, including chiselling into a person's brain, emulating torture and blinding victims with blades or scissors. Punctuated with the gory horror were often comedic, sexualised scenes considered titillating to some, giving the theatre the unique characteristic of having to provide privacy boxes for audience members to act on their sexual arousal, and on the other hand, providing rest areas for those who fainted or felt they might vomit. Additionally, some of the onstage special effects are often regarded still as being so realistic that their methods remain unexplained to this day. In turn, this provided influence to magicians, keeping the methods of their illusions completely secret, as documented in the Christopher Nolan movie, The Prestige. You're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. Because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. But you wouldn't clap yet. Because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act. The hardest part. The part we call the prestige. If folk tales and religion were the primordial ancestors of shock rock, then it is the Grand Guignol that would be akin to the missing link in scientific studies of evolution. It can be seen that the Guignol had many of the theatric elements of shock rock and the ability to offend as well. The only thing missing were electric guitars and amplifiers. In the prehistory of shock rock, the Grand Guignol was one of the most quintessential watershed moments, and combined with the theatrical techniques embraced in burlesque and vaudeville, the seeds were planted for elements of the genre. However, if there was another watershed moment in the genetic makeup of shock rock, it would be in the rise of the circus, 
Combining theatrics with elements of the commemoration of carnival and masquerades, the circus led by a ringmaster provided a huge influence to the future of shock rock. In fact, many bands have brought in circus themes into their music as an indication of this influence, from Wasp's Inside the Electric Circus and Kiss's Psycho Circus to the character of Clown in Slipknot. Circus iconography has played a huge stimulus. Importantly, however, was the incorporation of freak shows and sideshows of the circuses around the world. Freak shows themselves have a lengthier history, with earliest known accounts popping up in 16th century England. Typically, though, the freak sideshows of the early circuses comprised of humans with extraordinary biological characteristics, either real or contrived, ranging from the smallest dwarves to giant women to elephant men or balloon-headed babies, along with the widely recognised icons of bearded women and people with full-body tattoos. Additionally, the freak sideshows had entertainers with risky or dangerous skills from fire-breathing, sword-swallowing, and displays of real or cleverly faked historical items as curiosities. The sensationalism accompanied with the freak sideshows of the circuses generated a type of brand marketing and entertainment that wouldn't be seen again until KISS distributed and sold action figures, pyjamas, lunchboxes, and comics. But there is another important element that accompanies the theatrics of the Grand Guignol, the freak sideshows of the circuses, and that is with consideration to publicity. The Oscar Meitners of the Guignol and the P.T. Barnums of the circus performances both discovered that it was far cheaper and more successful to have negative publicity about the shocking and offensive nature of their shows than it was to advertise in a traditional fashion. The famous writer George Bernard Shaw once stated that, the secret to success is to offend the greatest number of people, a characteristic that not only embodied the nature of the freak show and the theatrics of horror, but would also be an essential factor of the future genre of shock rock. The early to mid-20th century saw a rapid decline in these theatrics. Politicians began to proscribe elements of freak shows as exploitation, and the Grand Guignol closed down in 1962. Though horror movies picked up where the theatres left off, and horror literature continued to be successful. But where does music fit in? Many of the ancestors of shock rock have their origins in their visual natures and their abilities to disconcert the easily offended. The post-war boom saw the creation of a strong teenage demographic during the 1950s and 1960s, which also saw the rise of early rock and roll. The matchup of the two, baby boom audience, with music performance, was a natural marriage. And with that came some shock elements that offended the parents of the era. Elvis's hip motions on television were perceived as over-sexualized and inappropriate in the 1950s, while the Beatles claiming they were bigger than Jesus was regarded as a scandal in England during the 1960s. The rise of the hippie movement was also considered distasteful by the aging moral majority. The rise of rock and roll would underscore the biggest generation gap in the pre-internet era, and the element of something being shocking or offensive only served to promote it even further, an accomplishment already proved by the Guignols and circuses of yesteryear. It's only natural then that eventually the music of rock and roll would be found to be incredibly compatible with the provocative nature of horror theatrics and the astounding displays of the circus sideshows. 
it was in this combination that Shockrock came to be. Nonetheless, while Shockrock is most definitely a subgenre of heavy metal, its first performer appeared over a decade before Black Sabbath would release their first album. This gives the category the unusual characteristic of being a subgenre of a genre before the genre was even identified. This also brings forth the confusing nature of the subgenre that also includes non-metal performers, such as Australia's Tism as well. I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug to kill River Phoenix, I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug to kill River Phoenix. And though Alice Cooper is often seen as the inaugural band to marry the concept of shock rock with the musical style of heavy metal, the first shock rocker appeared in the early 1950s, singing in a bizarre operatic vocal sound to the styles of soul and blues. In developing his unique sound, he and his band recorded some music one night in 1956 while they were blind drunk. Hung over the next day, the performer listened to the new sound they'd stumbled across. Featuring unique yells and calls, voodoo and horror references that have been impromptu, as well as random grunting and snorting, the song became his biggest hit. It was called I Put a Spell on You, and the artist is the father of all shock rock. His name is Screaming Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you. Because of mine Stop the things you do Jay Hawkins had stumbled across a unique marriage of rock and roll, the Grand Guignol and Circus Sideshow. His shock rock would move on to focus on elements of cannibalism and voodoo, and his costume performances were just as outlandish and bombastic. His famous song, I Put a Spell on You, is a fundamental in shock rock, and would later be covered by other artists in the genre, such as Marilyn Manson. But another early shock rocker would also cover I Put a Spell on You. Arthur Brown, the second shock rocker, was notable for his eccentric theatrics, use of stage makeup well before Alice Cooper and Kiss, and songs that focused on occult topics, weird horror, but also universal and elemental perceptions popular in the hippie movements during the 1960s. Arthur Brown would be most remembered, though, for his song, Fire. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you... Fire!
Performing on his own, but also as a part of the band's The Crazy World of Arthur Brown and the 1970s psychedelic shock rockers Kingdom Come, Arthur Brown would become hugely influential. He would prove to be a crucial inspiration for Alice Cooper and Kiss, but also a massive inspiration for singers of future English metal bands, including Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden, Ozzy Osbourne of Black Sabbath, and Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Meanwhile, also in England, another shock rocker would emerge to deliver to the music fans. Born David Edward Such, he thumbed his nose at the class structure embedded in British culture and renamed himself to Screaming Lord Such, 3rd Earl of Harrow, basically to piss off and offend the upper class. His debut song was the subject of our last episode, Jack the Ripper, and his stage show was filled with horror themes with caskets and bones and axes. This mischievous performer would serve to offend a great many in the equivalent vein of the trickster stories and the gallows humour mentioned earlier, not only in music, but in politics as well. Such ran in many elections for Parliament and formed his own political party called the official monster-raving loony party. But in his early days, as a shock rocker, Screaming Lord Such would contribute something else to the history of heavy metal. The guitarist of his band went by the name of Richie Blackmore, who would eventually move on to form Deep Purple and Rainbow. From the phantasmagoria tales of folklore to the fire and brimstone and tricksters of religious sermons, to horror fiction, to the Grand Guignol, to the freaks of the circus sideshow, the backgrounds of shock rock have a long and deep history reflecting the darker sides of humanity that people would often fear to embrace or confront. With the rise of Screaming Jay Hawkins, Screaming Lord Such and Arthur Brown, shock rock had set itself a solid cornerstone and foundation to build from. All that was left was for heavy metal bands to get their grubby little mitts on it. But before we get to that, it's time for a prehistoric mosh. Screaming Jay Hawkins' most notorious song is I Put a Spell on You, but there's another of his songs that would eventually become popular because of its inclusion in an episode of The X-Files in the 1990s. It's called Frenzy. Let's take a listen. Just from my heart, like a water. 
And now, let's take a glance at this week in Metal News. Stephen Coronel, former guitarist of Wicked Lester and songwriting collaborator with KISS, is noted as being the man who introduced Gene Simmons to Paul Stanley. This week, however, he was arrested by South Carolina authorities for child pornography charges. Coronel is accused of streaming child porn to a website, and when law enforcement executed a search warrant on his property, several videos were found to have been streaming live during his arrest, depicting non-consensual sexual acts with children ranging in ages from 3 to 12 years old. The Beaufort County Sheriff's Office has confiscated a large amount of media from Coronel's apartment, and it is unclear whether he was involved in the production of any of the videos. Coronel remains jailed, awaiting initial court hearings. Gore's new female vocalist, Volvatron, has conducted her first interview with Metal Injection in an amusing back and forth that would make her lost scum dogs proud. During the interview, she was quoted as saying, My sexual functions are far too advanced to mate with most primitive forms. Massachusetts hard rockers Mongrel have released a new video for their song Snakes, available from their Evolution EP. Carcass is going to be releasing a follow-up EP to their mighty reunion album Surgical Steel. Entitled Surgical Remission Surplus Steel, the EP will contain rare tracks as well as unreleased recordings from the Surgical Steel sessions. The EP will be released November 11. In a new mystery for Metalheads, Jason Newstead has disappeared from all social media. The former bassist of Metallica is no longer present on Facebook or Twitter and released a post on his official site stating, Jason Newstead is not on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or any other social networking website as of September 15, 2014, and has no affiliation with any such imposter sites using his name or likeness unlawfully. The mysterious disappearance from social media has shocked fans, especially after Newstead was so engaging with his followers on Facebook and Twitter during the release of his heavy metal music album last year. The incident follows his mysterious cancellation from Australia's Soundwave Festival earlier this year due to private and personal circumstances. While Tony Iommi has recently mentioned that the touring may be coming to an end for Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne has leaked that the band are currently in discussions to record a new follow-up album to last year's reunion release, 13. Geezer Butler has also recently hinted that the band may be returning to the studio, while word from management and the record label seems that Black Sabbath are planning to record their new album during 2015. Virginia police have reported they have made a significant break in the case of a murdered Metallica fan, Morgan Harrington. The 20-year-old woman vanished after one of the band's concerts in 2009, with her remains found months later. Jesse L. Matthew Jr. was arrested last week, and while the police have not publicly announced him as the accused murderer, they are confident in announcing that his capture has proven to be a major step forward in resolving the case. Tom Morello, formerly of Rage Against the Machine, is in the hot seat this week after Twitter remarks he made about poor service from the Five Point Cafe in Seattle. The tirade was followed by responses from cafe management winning over internet observers, revealing that Morello and his party were extremely rude and demanding special treatment, despite the cafe being at capacity at the time, with a waiting line out the door. Morello has received countless tweets of criticisms from his own fans of the conduct, revealing a massive drop in respect towards him and his political causes and agendas. After months of speculation, the family of former ACDC guitarist Malcolm Young has confirmed that he is suffering from dementia and is living under full-time care in a nursing home in Sydney following a stroke during 2013. The family released a statement thanking the fans and the media for respecting their privacy. Meanwhile, his former bandmates are preparing the release of their new album, Rock or Bust, 
to be released in December 2 in tribute to and dedicated to Malcolm, who is credited with being the creator and founder of the famous Aussie pub rock band. And finally, Mastodon have released a new video for the song The Motherload, which has come under accusations of sexism. The music video features morally ambiguous theatric symbolism punctuated with professional dancers who twerk with extreme athleticism in the foreground, highlighting the blurring lines between art and talent through history against that which offends people. Band members have denied the sexism claims, but have also denied the higher concept of the music video, claiming the juxtaposition was chosen simply to confuse viewers. Links for the news can be found in the show notes. And if you have any metal news that you know of, feel free to submit it to reddit.com slash r slash metal news. On the next Heavy Metal Historian, we finish off our look into shock rock as we move into the originators of shock rock within heavy metal and dive into ambitious territory as we attempt to subcategorize shock rock bands from its beginnings to its future. We look at the rise and the future of shock rock. Subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher, follow the show on Facebook or at Metal Podcast 666 on Twitter, and send us a message if there's something you'd like Heavy Metal Historian to deal with, or if you have questions you'd love answered. You can also catch me on the Blendover Podcast at blendover.com, and on the Doctor Who TARDIS Blend over at geeksofdoom.com. We'll see you next time on Heavy Metal Historian, Hails and Horns, and until next time, in keeping with exploring the roots of shock rock, Here's Alice Cooper as ringmaster trying to convince young Stephen to join his grandest Guignol travelling circus theatre. This is Sideshow from the 1994 concept album The Last Temptation as our closing headbanger.
something for everyone's taste. So you look like a bright young boy. What's the matter, you afraid?